0: Every year, hundreds of people go missing in national parks all over North America. Most can be explained, but there are always a few that seem to match a pattern of having strange circumstances surrounding the disappearances, or baffling locations on where people are found. In some situations, people will be out in the wilderness together, and one person disappears in the blink of an eye, and then the person will turn up somewhere where their journey to that location is miles away and the path they had to take to make it to that location seems impossible. Sometimes the person is just never found, but the circumstances are so mysterious that it leaves more questions than answers. A retired police detective named David Politis spent tens of thousands of hours researching these strange disappearances and trying to find answers on what happened. He compiled the research and stories into a book series called Missing 411. And there are even a couple documentaries out about the phenomenon too. Today I'll be talking about three strange stories from missing 411 that have never been solved. I'm Tatiana and this is Occurrence. On March 14, 2014 in Vail, Colorado, pretty much in the center of the Rocky Mountains, James and three friends were on a splitboard trip. Splitboarding is a lot like cross-country skiing. It's a snowboard that can split in half and turn into skis to go uphill and be put back together as a snowboard to go downhill. The group wanted to journey to Eisman Hut and had to travel up the mountain to make it there. Around 10 a.m., they reached a spot on the steep trail to rest, but James wanted to continue on. He ran marathons and was in great shape, so he didn't feel the need to rest yet and told his friends he would continue to the next rest stop and wait for them there. They were fine with that and said, Okay, see you in a bit. So James continued on and was carrying his rented split board on his backpack. Inside the backpack, he had a cell phone, a backup battery for the phone, a GPS, a shovel, medical supplies, and protective gear to keep warm like a blanket. He was clearly very prepared, so prepared that the group mapped out the rest stops they would take along the trail. Once his friends rested up and continued on to the next stop, they didn't see James, so they kept going to the next spot, but again, no James. They kept going one stop after the next, searching for Dr. James McGrogan, thinking maybe he just kept going and was waiting further along. But by 5.30 p.m., they still hadn't found him after searching for a few hours and decided to go for help. They sent one friend down the mountain while the others waited on top. There was snow on the ground, but the trail was so worn down that it was impossible to miss. Hundreds of people in and out of Vale would use the trail so the snow was so compact that you literally couldn't lose it. But it seemed like maybe somehow James did. For the next five days, three helicopters would search for 18 square miles around the area James should have been. People were searching on foot too and the search effort was massive. Everyone was looking for James. They were looking in places where it would have made sense for James to have ended up and expanded to areas where it was unlikely for him to be, but they wanted to be thorough and search anyway. But there were no tracks leading off the trail and no activity indicating people were hiking or skiing off the track. There wasn't a single trace of James. After five days, the weather turned bad and the search was called off. 20 days after James went missing, three hikers were walking on Booth Lake Trail. The trail was four and a half miles away from where James was last seen and had been searched extensively before, but at the bottom of an ice chute, on top of a sheet of ice at Booth Creek Falls, those three hikers found James' remains. They called the sheriff's office and everyone was confused, but they couldn't figure out how he ended up there. The path to get there from where he was at made no sense. He would have had to pass through two gullies over a 12,000-foot mountain. He wasn't wearing a coat, gloves, or boots, and they actually never even found his boots. His coat was in his backpack, along with a working GPS and cell phone, and that entire area had self-service, but at no point did James actually use his phone. The autopsy revealed a severe head injury, trauma to the left side of his chest, a broken femur, and signs of animals messing with his remains. It seemed like he fell from high up, but there were no tracks or footprints anywhere around him that indicated where he would have fallen from or how he ended up there. For you to understand how improbable his supposed journey was, I have to break it down and explain it for you. James would have had to veer off trail and somehow not leave any footprints or indications where he left the trail and climb up 1,296 feet to an elevation of about 11,000 feet. Then he would have had to descend down 1,000 feet into a valley with the creek, cross that creek, and then go back up 1,130 feet with an elevation of around 1,200 feet. Then he had to go down to a lower summit, 1,000 feet, before finally descending another 1,030 feet into Booth Falls. He would have had to have done this with 30-foot snowdrifts in a high risk of avalanches and without his skis since they were still on his pack. And that four and a half miles I mentioned earlier was air miles. If we're accounting for him going on foot on the ground, it's closer to about 16 miles since he would have been doing switchbacks and this would have taken multiple days to complete. The next story takes place in 1999. Alan Atadero was working at a resort in the Comanche Peak Wilderness of Northern Colorado. He had his two kids with him, three-year-old Jared and his daughter, Jocelyn. That morning, Alan is fighting with Jared as usual because Jared doesn't want to wear shoes again because he doesn't like wearing them. So after a little back and forth, they compromise and Jared will wear the shoes as long as he doesn't have to tie them up. At the same time, at the resort, a Christian single group was staying and enjoying the wilderness. A woman in the group asked Alan if he was okay with them taking his kids to a local fish hatchery. Alan agreed, so Jared and his sister went with the group. But they spent a very short amount of time at the hatchery before deciding they wanted to do something else. And without asking Alan for permission or even attempting to let him know plans had changed, they decided they wanted to walk on the Big South Trail and brought the kids along for the journey. The trail is very rugged and has some pretty steep climbs. There are warnings placed about wildlife and mountain lions and what to do if your child goes missing. About 40 minutes into the hike, two fishermen were by the river when Jared went up to them and asked if they had seen any bears. They responded saying no, they hadn't seen any, and they actually hadn't heard of any bears being on those trails at all. So Jared just nodded at them and continued on down walking. The fishermen didn't stop him, just assumed his parents were nearby, but they were the last people to see Jared alive. Four years later, and 550 feet up in the mountains, above the last place Jared was seen, Search and Rescue found a single tooth, part of a skull, inside-out sweatpants, a sweatshirt, and a pair of pristine children's shoes. They all belonged to Jared. His shirt was never found. This case is baffling because somehow a three-year-old ended up 550 feet up a very steep mountain. Adult men had to climb on their hands and knees to make it up to that same spot. And somehow his shoes were in nearly perfect condition and didn't fall off even though they were untied. And when David Politis visited that very spot in 2014, he found a Rubik's Cube that looked very aged and very worn down. It lacked the usual colors Rubik's Cubes have and instead was completely black and white. Our next story takes place in 1977, where 24-year-old Stephen Kubacki was an undergraduate student at Hope College. The school was near the shores of Lake Michigan, so in February, it was covered in snow. Stephen decided to go out on a solo cross-country skiing expedition, but the next day, When people started realizing he hadn't returned, a search team went out to look for him. All they found from Stephen was his poles and skis at the edge of the lake with just one set of footprints leading towards the water that went on for 600 feet and no footprints walking away. Everyone assumed he had an accident or drowned himself in the freezing lake, but they would eventually find out that wasn't exactly the case. His family and friends were devastated But after a month of Stephen's body not turning up, they had no answers, so they could only draw those two conclusions. Stephen went missing in the famed Michigan Triangle. This is an area over Lake Michigan that stretches from Manitowoc, Wisconsin, to Ludington, Michigan, with the final point reaching South Benton Harbor. This area is similar to the better-known Bermuda Triangle because small ships to large commercial vessels and even planes have gone down in the Michigan Triangle. The disappearances in the area go back as far as 1891, where a ship with eight men went missing and no traces of them or their boat was ever seen again. But it was now 1979, 14 months after Stephen disappeared, and on May 5th, Stephen's aunt heard someone at the door. She went to answer it, and there Stephen was, standing on the doorstep. She was shocked and so happy to have him back but quickly realized something was wrong he was in different clothes and seemed confused like he had just woken up from a long nap but they hug and embrace and steven's confused about all the fuss and then his aunt told him he had been missing for 14 months and steven's shocked but then he tells her something mysterious he said most of his memories are missing but he remembered being exhausted and numb walking through the snow on Lake Michigan before blocking out. The next thing he knew, and what felt like the blink of an eye, it was spring and he was lying in the middle of a forest in a grassy field. He was wearing clothes that weren't his and next to him was a backpack he had never seen before, with running shoes and glasses that didn't belong to him. So he walked to the nearest town and found a local resident to ask him where he was and And they told him he was in pittsfield massachusetts 700 miles away from where he had been skiing but he had family in massachusetts his aunt and father lived in pittsfield and that's how he ended up at his aunt's house Stephen said while he was away he felt like he had been doing a lot of running but what he was doing during that time has never been discovered today he lives in the pacific northwest And after receiving various degrees in linguistics and German studies, he went on to get his PhD in psychology and published a book about trying to figure out the mystery of his missing year. If you like the stories today, be sure to let me know by leaving a review, comment, and a like. This topic was requested first by one of my sisters and then by a listener. Don't forget to follow or subscribe. All sources can be found at occurrencepod.com. Stay safe and see you next week.